And uh, open your Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 5. Usually during the summer, during the summer we have camp reports uh, from our young people. Uh, They haven't started going to camp yet, uh, done some training, but uh, I went to camp last week. I went to pastor camp, which is called uh, taking a class, uh, 28 hours uh, sitting in class, in a uh, class on missions at Baptist Bible Seminary in Clark Summit, Pennsylvania. I had a great time there and uh, learned some things and uh, kind of made aware of things. Made aware of things to be aware of, I guess you'd say. It's, uh, the world is an ever-changing place, even in the, in the area of, of uh, how people think about missions and God's Word. Mm. Um, I'm not sure, though, what kind of uh, welcome home Don Hubbard was trying to give me. <laughs> Not sure what that message was. There's two great big holes about this big poked in my office from the outside. <laughs> Sheetrock's all broken and my desk is kind of all cattywampus there. I didn't appreciate that, Don. Last Sunday, Sue and I attended the First Baptist Church of New York City. Yeah, the First Baptist Church of New York City, and it is the First Baptist Church in New York City, founded in 1744, or some crazy thing. Yeah, George Washington was baptized there, and it is a regular Baptist church just like us. You know, when you go to another, when you're gone from church, you're supposed to always get the bulletin to prove you were in church when you're on vacation. (laughs) There it is right there. Um, But I tell you the truth, spiritually, it's in the process of being revived. Um, I don't know how long it has been spiritually unhealthy, unwell, but they're in the process now. They have a new pastor, and, and they have a gorgeous museum-looking building on the outside. I mean, you imagine any, any incredible building in New York City, that's what it looks like on the outside, but spiritually, there's much work to be done. And uh, recently, the, I think this is the First Baptist Church of Houston, if I understand, if I remember the right name, has decided to connect with a number of churches across the country that need help, and they have decided to focus on, uh, on that church and so while we were there, the pastor was down in Houston preaching and somebody else was filling in. And, and uh, so they're in a process of rebuilding. So when you, th- when you see New York City on TV, which you do many times in television shows, remember the First Baptist Church and pray for them because there's much work to be done. Um, we, we had a, Sue went with me uh, two weeks ago and we cruised around uh, Pennsylvania and New York and saw some places where I lived when I was a kid and some places like the school that I'm going to there in Pennsylvania. And, and, and you know, when we went to New York City, I learned what this phrase means. When you go on vacation, take half the clothes and twice the money you think you will need. <laughs> in New York, it should... Take half the clothes and three times the money that you think you're going to need. Everything is a la carte in New York. It cost 40 bucks a day to park the car while we were there. And if we'd have driven it around, it would have been worse. Um, last Sunday, I dropped her off the airport, and I headed to Clark Summit for, for, uh, for my class. And, uh, and uh, it was a very interesting time. One of the great things about being on campus is interacting with other men who are also taking classes. Most of the classes only have a few students, but there are multiple classes. There are only four students in my class. Several of them are that size, and that's, you know, that's, a, that's a good thing because you really get to interact with the professors as well as the other students who, in my class, uh, there were three other pastors besides myself. Some, some good men, made some good friends. Um, one of the younger men that I met from another class came, to, to, uh, came from Haiti a few years ago. He's working on a Ph.D. in biblical language and hopes to be a Bible translator someday. 
Um, he was a little frustrated because he doesn't know how to get from where he is uh, as a part-time staff member to being a full-time uh, missionary. And some of the other pastors that were more experienced, uh, along with myself, gave him some, uh, some ideas about how he could get there. Well, we drove around uh, all over the place and, and, you know, basically everywhere we went, with exception of just a couple of places I've never been before driving a car. And, uh, and so I took the GPS unit with me, and believe me, I plugged in every address. I think, though, we've used up our quota of recalculating. <laughs> that gal was so frustrated with me. Recalculating, recalculating. I know, I know already. Uh, it's frustrating when you can't get to where you want to be. You know the destination, and you're trying to get there, but you can't. The GPS generally alleviates that. It says, turn here, turn there, go this way, go that way, and you'll get to where you want to be. Um, when we think about men and uh, being a husband and being a father, we're familiar with a couple of the commands of Scripture that come out of Ephesians 5 and 6, but sometimes it's still a little frustrating because in Ephesians 5 and 6, we kind of get the destination, but we don't get the journey. We don't get the instruction about how to get there. Let's look at those destinations that God has given us, and, and I understand that they're both kind of a destination and a journey all in one command, but Look at verse 25 out of Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. It took me a few years of marriage to realize that there is not a command here to lead. <laughs> you know that there's a command to love. The leadership is implied, and I get that, and I'm, I'm for men being in leadership. If you're new here to my church, don't, don't misunderstand me, because wives are commanded to follow. There's no doubt about that. But the biggest part of the command is to act like Jesus in terms of how we care for people. And there's a sense in which that's, that's the destination, that's the definition of what it means to be a Christian husband. Are you laying your life down like Christ in your effort to lead your family? And then the other command that goes with that for those who have children is in chapter 6. Um, down in verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up. How? In the training and admonition of the Lord. That is the that is what we are supposed to be doing. And the thing that I would like to add to these, to perhaps to define the journey a little bit today, is to, is to do really what these texts are implying when they say, imitate Jesus. Now, Jesus wasn't a husband or a father. And yet we're still supposed to be a husband and be a father like Jesus. I think the best way we can do that is to turn back to the Gospel of Matthew and start in chapter 4 and just look at a few of the characteristics of Christ and apply those to being a, a husband and a father. For those of you that aren't husbands or fathers here today, I think you might find a little applicability to your life too, um, and I hope that you will. But I want to speak to the men primarily today. Matthew 4, starting in verse 1, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you. And it is written, In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, It is written, Again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. 
And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. (coughs) Christ's life provides the pattern for Christian men who want to know how to love and to lead their family in a godly way, and that begins first and foremost with God's word. If you want to follow Christ's pattern of life, you've got to follow God's word. Now, I understand that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and man in one nature in a way that we can't fully understand, and yet everything about his life is referenced by the word. It's referred to the word. It's based on the word, the word, the word. He even said it here to make it absolutely clear to Satan. He, he was not giving his own word. He says, it is written. He was the word of God the Father. Interesting that Satan also uses the word to try to get us off track. First two days of my class were about theology and the current concepts of theology in in the world because there are people who would like to take God's word and twist it a little bit and put it out and the net effect, if you pick it up in that shape and in that place and pull it into your life, it's going to get you off track. If Jesus had listened to the word as Satan gave it to him, he would have been in sin. But he knew the word and he quoted the word and he lived by the word. God's word is the roadmap for life. It is the stuff that only the GPS unit knows down in the heart of its computer that I don't know. Before we left on this trip, I bought a special dashboard holder so I could set that GPS right up on the dashboard of that rental car. And I bought maps of New York and Pennsylvania. And I went on Google and I said, how do you go from here to there? And I had all of that because I don't want to drive around in circles in Pennsylvania. I really don't. I like Pennsylvania, but just not that much. (laughs) I was covering new ground, and I didn't want to waste time. You know, you can muddle through life. That's really the world's philosophy. There's a lot of of this going on in the world. Well, what do you expect? Well, can't do any better. And so they muddle through life. And the excuse is, that's the way everybody else lives. I'm not interested in that. Really not. I can remember, (laughs) I think I shared this with you a few weeks ago, I can remember when my wife, after about three years or so of marriage, said something like, it's about time to have a kid. And I went, okay. I didn't know anything about being a father. I never babysat kids once in my life. I didn't have a little sister or brother. Okay? I didn't know anything about that at all. My son sent me a text last night and said, thanks for being a good dad. I said, hey, good dads are only known by good kids. And I'm thankful for my kids. I'm thankful that they've all wa- they're all walking with the Lord. But I'm here to tell you, I did not know how to do that. But God's word has the answers for all of life. That is the coolest thing about God's word. Whatever you need, it's in there. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God. The word inspiration means it comes right out of his mouth. And it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. So that the man of God may be all that. He may be equipped for every good work. There is nothing in life that God's word cannot give you the principles to find a way to walk on. There's nothing... Second uh, Peter chapter 1, his, he has given us all things that pertain to life, whatever you need. These four words, are, are uh, they, they cover sort of the range of things we have to learn. The word doctrine, 
When we see the word doctrine, we think theology or something kind of formalized. In the New Testament, it just refers to the content of truth, to the knowledge, if you will. It's God's word on any topic. Then the word reproof means a declaration of what is wrong. Are we having a problem? Okay. A declaration of what is wrong. The correction means a declaration of what is right. And then the instruction in righteousness, the key word here is instruction, and that word means training. It's the same word translated chastening in Hebrews 12. It's also translated discipline sometimes. When we think of the word discipline, we think of of spanking a child for punishment. That's not what God is talking about. It's about about the forming of a person and the idea of training. It's much more akin to the idea of athletic training. You, you, you know, if you're going to be a football player, you, you run and you lift weights and you learn skill. All of this training and the end product is a football player. God's word is the map for life. It has what we need to know on any topic of life. It can tell us what's wrong, what's right, and how to get there. The word of God changes the man... And it is the man's toolbox so that he has the tools he needs to love his and lead his wife and to rear his children. There are many challenging questions for a husband and father to answer. Do these genes make me look fat? (laughs) Did you ever need more wisdom than right at that moment? And so you call on God's word and it says, speak the truth in love. (laughs) Oh, God, help me. (laughs) Dear, you know I love you. Why can't I have ice cream before dinner? At grandpa's house is not a problem. (laughs) Different answers now. Why can't I hang out with those kids? What happens when we die? This week we read a Facebook post from a a childhood friend of my son's. He has a PhD in communications. He's a college professor now back in the Midwest. He does not walk with the Lord. His parents did. He was raised in the Lord, but he does not walk with the Lord. And his child, who's a few years old, was asking him about a certain movie and the good and the bad and people. And this guy is trying to explain to his daughter why people are good and bad. And, it's make, and he posted his answer to this stuff online. And it's making him question his own concepts of the world. Praise the Lord. There's some tough questions to answer. But you know what? The answers are here. The answers are here. I know sometimes we don't feel like we have the ability to answer, but God says he will not let any test overtake us except as is common to man, and he will be faithful to make sure we can bear that test, which means whatever we've learned is sufficient to share when those questions are asked that are hard to answer. Why can't I marry an unbeliever? Why can't I date an unbeliever? How can I say no to temptation? How can I be true to my wife? How can I be patient with my kids? Being a godly husband and father is challenging, but it's doable with God's word. Because not only does God's word give the guidance for every aspect of life, it's also the power of life. Listen to these descriptions of God's word. The word of God is living and powerful. And then this one that I quoted earlier, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you can be partakers of the divine nature. Reading and applying God's word is not talk therapy. Talk therapy is when you go to somebody and they give you some advice And they say, well, if it was me, I would do this, or if it was me, I would do that. And you go away thinking, okay, I guess I'll do this or that. 
and you go and do it, and you try to do it, and you're just a human being doing something somebody advised you to do. That is not how God's word works. God's word is powerful. And so when you, as a believer in Christ, if you're not a believer in Christ, this doesn't apply to you yet. But if you're a believer in Christ, when you pick up God's word and you say, okay, God, you've said to do this, to live this way, to guide my children that way, here it is. And you pick it up and you say, I'm going to take this into my life and I'm going to act on it. When you act on it, it changes you. It grows you up. It matures you. And God's word is such and God is such and the Holy Spirit is so interested in us that he helps you to learn and to remember and to stack up his truth. He says it's learned line upon line, precept upon precept. And as we learn it day by day by day by day, we grow. We grow and we become bigger people and better people in Christ. What happened when Christ quoted God's word to the devil in the time of temptation? What happened? Boom, temptation over. Now, I don't believe Jesus Christ was tempted in the same way we are. I believe he got to understand the temptation, but I don't believe it was possible for him to sin. I understand that's different from you and I. But I understand the devil responds the same way to God's word, whether it's Jesus quoting it or you. So the question I would ask you men and all of us is, what do you do when temptation comes? Do you go, it is written? Or do you allow your habits of sin to just roll you into another spiritual failure? Do you think about it? Oh, it's good to think. Do you rationalize that's what we usually do. Well, I know I shouldn't do this, but... And we rationalize. Do you rebel and seize the pleasure? Or do you take your sword out of its sheath and drop the temptation on the ground, dead for this round? Do you realize that's our potential in Christ? To say, no! And here's why. See, when you quote God's word, there is power released in you and in the spiritual world that you can't see. We don't need five rules for, for success or a pep talk. We need the power of God's word. We need the strength to look a four-year-old right in the eye and say no and to mean it and persevere. David took down Goliath, and I'm going to win this battle, little one. We need power. We need power. You do not have in you what you need unless you're in Jesus, and Jesus is in you. But if he is in you, you do have what you need. We need power, and it's freely available to us. Men... We need to follow the pattern of Christ who lived in the word of God. And we've got to follow Christ's pattern, not only in the word, but also in prayer. Turn with me over a few pages to Mark, the second book in the New Testament. Mark chapter 1, verse 35. Now in the morning, Mark 1, 35, having risen a long while before daylight... He went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. How early do you have to get up to have a time of prayer? However long it takes. He got up very early, and he went and prayed. Now listen to what the disciples said. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. They woke up probably at daylight. And, you know, I'm not criticizing them for sleeping in until daylight. They woke up and they went, where's Jesus? Verse 37, when they found them, they said, everyone is looking for you. 
But he said to them, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. You understand what Peter said when Peter found him? Peter said, why are you wasting time praying? He said, what are you doing out here? We're all been looking for you. We got stuff to do. The most revolutionary things I've heard about prayer came from a pastor from Oregon named D. Duke. And in a seminar, he said two things that just absolutely stuck with me. This is 14 years ago. And he said, first of all, prayer isn't fun, it's work. Prayer isn't fun, it's work. Now, I'm not saying it's not a blessing to pray. It is, and there's blessings in prayer. and And he wasn't saying, oh, I just grit my teeth and pray. What he was saying is, if you're really going to pray substantially, it's going to take effort. It's going to take effort. It's work. There are battles to be fought in prayer. And what I mean by that is, like Jesus in the garden, when he had a sense of what was coming, and he was wrestling with God, saying, oh, God... uh, okay, but if there's some other way it could happen, and he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood over the, over the difficulty of working through what he knew was coming, in the end he said, okay, God, let's go. Now, he wasn't arguing with God. What we understand there is as a human being, he understood how difficult this was going to be. Have you wrestled with God in prayer until he changed you? We want to wrestle with God. We want to get God by the arm and twist his arm and say, come on, God, do what I want. That's not the wrestling we need. We need to wrestle with God until he gets our arm turned up and we go, okay, I get it. I'm ready to do your will. Prayer is is work, there's effort. If you're gonna genuinely pray for the the people in your life, for the challenges of your life, it's gonna take some time and some effort. But he said something else that really resonated with me. He said, I pray because there's a lot of things I want. Now, some of you are immediately thinking, hey, wait a minute, Pastor Dave, we're not supposed to be praying selfishly. Absolutely, I agree with you. Prayer isn't about getting what I want unless... What I want is what God wants. You remember a little verse that talks about God's attitude toward those who are unsaved? He is not willing that. He is not willing that any should perish. In other words, God's desire is for people to become believers in Christ. When I want somebody to become a Christian, I want what God wants. And I should have full faith and confidence to to get a hold of heaven and say, oh, God, save this person. Now, I don't have any right getting mad at him about the timing or the means or any of that. But I have the right to say, oh, God, I know you want this. Does God want you to be a righteous person? then there should be no problem getting a hold of heaven and saying, oh God, help me with this. Help me with this temptation. Help me with this thing. And, And praying. There are things that we want. I want the First Baptist Church of New York City to be a shining example of the body of Christ at work. I want this church to be a shining example of the body of Christ at work. Now, now, now understand what I'm about to say here. You know that I love you and I love our church, but are there some things that could stand to progress and improve here? <laughs> Absolutely. And I, sometimes I don't know exactly which one God wants, but I know he wants us to, you know, there's a series of things that I could look 
you know, recently we had, to, we had to discuss together and come to a decision about borrowing some money to fix up the outside of the building. I don't know if that's, ahead of time, I don't know if that's exactly what God wants, but I know that God wants us to have a place to meet and he wants us to get together. I say, oh God, provide for us. I know God wants you to have food on your table. I know that because he says that. Is it right for you to pray that God will put food on your table? Absolutely. There have been times when members of my family out there needed me to pray that for them. Prayer, there are so many things that I want that God wants. Jesus said this in that day. He was talking to his disciples about the future when he would be gone. And he said, in that day you will ask me nothing. I I won't be here. You can't talk to me. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. Obviously, when he says, ask in my name, that's, that's that qualifier that we need, which says, this isn't about your selfish desire. It's about God's desires for the world. But I'll tell you the truth. My problem with prayer... 14 years ago wasn't that I had wrong desires. I wanted the things that God wanted, but instead of praying, I was fretting and worrying and planning and working and not asking God for help first and foremost. Men, do you want your wives to walk in godliness? And I'm not suggesting they're terrible people. I'm just saying... Do you want your wife to walk like Christ? The starting point is prayer. Do you want your children to walk like Christ? The starting point is prayer. Do you want to have a greater oneness with your wife, a greater relationship with your children? The starting point is prayer. Maybe you're here today and you just want a wife or a husband. The starting point is prayer. Do you want your boss to give you Sundays off so you can be in church? The starting point is prayer. Do you get the idea? Listen to this. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It's vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. For God gives his beloved sleep. We pray, we give our burdens to God and we go to bed and we sleep and we get up in the morning and do the things he's laid before us, praying while we're going and God answers prayer. I love this little quote. You can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you can never do more than pray until you've prayed. God wants us to pray. He wants us to ask. He told us to ask. Now, one of the questions you you might be thinking about is, why do we have to ask God? Even according to the prayer we call the Lord's Prayer to ask for our daily bread, why? I think the answer is wrapped up in worship. When I ask God for help, and God helps, who do I thank? First and foremost, I thank God. I may also thank his servants through whom he answered the prayer, But when I ask God for help and God makes things happen, then he gets the praise. Whether it be something little, like leaving your passport at home and needing to get into Canada because you've already paid for a hotel at Niagara Falls. And I don't know that I'm particularly good at looking helpless and sweet and so on. So much so that that Canadian border guard would let me in, but he did let us in. And he said, next time you bring the right papers. And I said, yes, sir, I will. We prayed about a bunch of stuff like that. You know, we made a lot of great plans, but we made a few that were not that great. And that's just the little stuff of life that in in one sense really doesn't even matter that much. And yet, God, we need your help. And when God answered, we thanked him. He gets the glory, not me. That's the business that God wants us to be in, giving glory to God. So men, 
don't worry, but pray. Don't manipulate, but pray. Don't fight, but pray. Do you have a prayer list with the names of all the significant people in your lives on it? Are you praying about your job and the spiritual lives of those at work? Are you praying more when there are bigger challenges? Do you ever say to your family, let's pray about it, and then actually stop and pray about it? I know sometimes if you haven't been in the habit of praying, you kind of think, seems kind of silly, it seems kind of super spiritual, it seems kind of whatever, just get over it. Just get over it and say, I've got to pray. Do you ever call your family to pray with you over a challenge? Are you demonstrating the prayer-filled life? Do you talk about answers to prayer so your loved ones will learn to pray? We need to lead, we need to love, we need to teach our children through the word and through prayer. And then turn with me to John 13 to learn one more lesson from the life of Christ about how to love and to lead our families. John 13, starting in verse 31. Let's see, that's not, that's not it. Starting in verse uh, 9 or 10 here, what have I got? I didn't put that down, but um, starting in verse, oh, verse 1. Now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his final hour had come and that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Verse 2. And, and supper being ended, the devil already put it in, into Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all these things into his hands and that he'd come from God and was going to God, what did he do? What was the very most first important thing he could do? He rose from supper, verse 4. He laid aside his garments. He took a towel and he girded himself, or he... He he wrapped up his loose clothing so he could get down and work. And after that, he poured the water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And then he came to Simon Peter, and Simon Peter said, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus said, what I am doing you do not understand, but you will understand it later. And with Peter above all, later on you're going to understand this. Peter said to him, "Never, my, you will never wash my feet. Jesus answered, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said, Lord, not my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet. Down to verse 12. And now when he had washed their feet and taken back his clothing and sat down, he said to them, do you understand what I have done? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am your teacher and Lord. He didn't deny his leadership position. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. There are folks in churches, well-meaning folks, who have made an ordinance out of washing feet. <laughs> Just like we have communion, they, they will stop and wash. Not, I don't know if they do everybody's feet or a few of the feet or whatever. That's, that's not a wicked thing to do. But the point of this scripture is way bigger than washing somebody's feet once a month. The point of this scripture is that we need to live in humility, We need to live in humility. Nothing about the fact that we are to be leading in the home and our wives are to be following and our children to obey, nothing about that means that we get to be arrogant and prideful and domineering. The fact that Jesus was humble does not mean he failed to lead. He taught, he organized, he gave instruction, he gave rebuke. 
He gave encouragement. He drove the wicked money changers out of the temple with a whip. He called the Pharisees hypocrites right to their face. He blessed little children. He forgave Peter. He died for our sins, and he did it all with humility. In speaking to spiritual leaders in the church, the apostle Peter got this lesson, and he passed it on in 1 Peter 5. The elders or spiritual leaders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. You see, right up here, the Apostle Peter lists his, in academic circles, his curricula vitae, in the business world, his resume, his qualifications. He said, I witness the glory that will be revealed. That's a reference to the Mount of Transfiguration. He said, I was one of three closest associates of Jesus. But instead of puffing up his chest, he said, now listen, when you lead the church, Don't lord it over people. Be a servant leader. A servant leader. It's a term that was coined a number of years ago in the Christian world to try to characterize what it means to be a leader, whether it's in the church setting or in the home for a godly man. It means that we lead for the sake of others. We don't lead to put ourselves up or to get our own way. We don't lead to obtain status. We don't lead to get our own way. We lead with God's goals for the family in mind. We lead out of a desire to help the family know Christ. We listen and we work together. And the result of that kind of servant leadership is this. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away Likewise, you younger people, he shifts now from the elders and talks to everybody in the church. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to the elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. Why? For God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. When Daniel was taken captive to Babylon, he did not want to participate in things that were ungodly, but he is, he is literally a, a slave. And how did he get out from under that? What did he do? He talked to God, and God gave him a plan, and he presented the plan, and he waited humbly, and they said, okay, we'll try it. And he lived out the plan, and, and all along it says, God gave him favor in the eyes of the leaders. Daniel didn't win that battle by planting his feet and saying, now I'm going to tell you I am not doing this thing. Well, he didn't do that. There was no arrogance. When David went up against Goliath, they accused him of arrogance and pride. They said, what are you doing here? You're just trying to see the battle, and who do you think you are? And David just said, this guy has defied God. Is there not a cause? He ran at Goliath, not out of pride or arrogance, but out of a humble servantship to God. He said, this has to change. And God gave grace to the humble. When we lead the way God wants us to lead, God is at work not just in us, but in our family, in our church, in whatever our circle of leadership is, God is at work. God resists, that word, one of that ways was was used in the ancient Greek is of warfare, going to war with. I don't want God going to war with me. I want to walk. I want to walk with him. I want to walk on his side of the line. 
I want Jesus to walk with me. I want Jesus to walk with me all along this manly journey. I want Jesus to walk with me. I don't ever want to be on the other side of the line from God. I don't want to be there at all. You know what one of the funnest things I got to do this week was? By the way, funnest is correct, more fun is incorrect, and I know that because that's what the spell check on my computer tells me. <laughs> I'm pretty sure when I was a kid, funnest was wrong and more fun was right. <laughs> Funner. One of the funnest things I got to do this week was brag about my church. I'm pretty sure I had the best church of the four represented in class. I love the stuff we do. I love the way we do it. I talked about all of our young people who serve in different ways. We were talking about missions, how to get people involved in missions. And I said, well, we, this is the way we do it. And I thought, I thought of Ben Hughes. I thought of Catherine. And, uh, you know, talked about our retired missionaries who were from previous generations. And I talked, Ron, I told him about your plan for how you bring people up to spiritual maturity. Wonderful thing. I talked about victories we've had. Now we've worked together in various ways. And I'm sure my classmates have good churches, but not as good as ours. Whatever we have done that is good is the result of living like Christ together. Which means there's no limit to the good we can do if we will just live more like Christ. If we will be more in the word, more in prayer. And so I share God's word with you today and offer these applications. Wives, the instruction I've given from God's word today is for your husbands, not you to beat him about the head and shoulders with. Do you know you cannot force your husband to lead? That goes against the concept of submission. It is your husband's responsibility. If you're spiritual ladies, I would assume you can see some application to your life also. Because whether you are married or not, single or otherwise, or male or female, single or married, we all ought to be living by God's word and in prayer and in humility in whatever our circle of influence is. But men, I would just say to you, if you want to love your wife like Christ, it will happen and it can happen through the word, through prayer and humility. And if you want to raise kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, it will only happen through the word, through prayer, and through humility. See, the problem with picking up a different system than God's word is you're on your own for the destination. God's word is the only way to get there. Becoming a recognized leader in the church, men, is something that happens while you are pursuing the leadership to which God calls all men. God's word talks about desiring the office of a bishop, but essentially the way, the path to becoming a leader in God's greater flock, more than just your own flock at home, is by walking in the, in the principles that God has for you now, day by day by day. And let me tell you, we need those spiritual leaders in the church. We need elders and deacons and teachers. We need them to be spiritual leaders, not just skilled workers. We need more elders. We need more deacons. We need more teachers. We need more men influencing boys toward Christ. No doubt about that. And the way it'll happen is for men to walk with the Lord where they are. Young men, all you young guys here, this is right for you. You cannot start to develop godly habits too soon. God's Life, the life of Christ, can only be developed one day at a time. I've talked to a few people in their older years who came to Christ, and they looked back and said, boy, I wish I'd have come to Christ sooner. I feel like I've wasted some years. 
I remember a 35-year-old guy in our church in Tukwila who just got his life squared away with salvation and a bunch of other issues, and he said, I'm starting over. Don't wait till you're 35 to start. Don't do it. Start right where you are right now. And if you're 35, don't stop because you aren't there yet. Just keep going. The longer you walk in a godly way, the more consistent you'll be in adult life. Ladies, you won't be leaders in the same sense that men will, but you will be influencing other women. And for those of you who are single... Do I need to say that this is the kind of man you need to look for? If you're going to follow a man, it's got to be a good man. You know, after I left being an associate pastor and became a senior pastor, which really is a code word for you're the only pastor, <laughs> there, were a few op- there were a few opportunities along the way to go back and work for other men. And the key thought I always thought of is, Boy, if I ever was to go and work for another man, I would have to truly, deeply respect him. You know, on, on boy, just about every level. I can't imagine what it's like to be married to a man that you don't respect. Better to wait, get it right, and get it good. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father. I thank you for where you have brought us as a church, families in our church. I thank you for where you've brought me because of your word and because of prayer and because of humility. But Father, there's much ground to cover, much ground to cover. And I pray that you'll help us to cover it. Help us to, help us to never settle for where we're at until we're just like Jesus. And we know we've got a ways to go there. Father, help us to move forward in you. Thank you for this day when we celebrate fatherhood and the family. May we have a great day with our families. May you encourage those who don't have a family. May they be strengthened in you and your way. May we go out of here to share your truth with those around us and the hope that we have for every part of our life. I pray in Christ's name, amen. Let's stand and